Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Catherine Flynn, editor of the book The Cambridge Centenary, Ulysses, the 1922 text with essays and notes. Catherine, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much, Mark. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, um, I am a professor of in the English department at UC Berkeley. Um, I work there on modernist literature, on James Joyce, on Flann O'Brien, on various Irish authors, and often in a European um, avant-garde context. But I'm actually a native of Ireland. I grew up in County Cork, and uh, I studied architecture in UCD first, actually, before following my... Um, passion and becoming, uh, <laughs> yeah, studying English and philosophy and embarking on a career as a literary critic. So what led you to undertake a, a new edition of Ulysses? Because it's a book that has been continually in print. We have lots of editions. What is it that, that led you to decide that, that now was a good time for a, a, a new uh, edition of the book? Yes, there have been many editions of Ulysses, many successful ones, and they all are interesting in some way and have something to offer the reader. What I, my plan was to produce something that reflected the state of scholarship at the moment and also invited readers in. So this is a huge year for Ulysses. It's the 100 year anniversary of the um, initial publication of the text by Shakespeare and Company. And this um, Cambridge Centenary Ulysses has a facsimile of that edition, but with notes, with introductory essays, with photographs, with maps, um, with many other things to help readers tackle this extremely intimidating book. So Ulysses is a difficult book, but it's actually a really enjoyable book as well, once you get into it. And this edition is to help you see that. It's to help you tackle the challenges that the book offers, but also to help you start to see its pleasures. And there's, I've gathered a wide range of voices in this book and a range of information that's easily accessible for the reader in order to bring people into that world so that they can start to explore it for themselves. Now, for those listeners who have heard of the book and who are familiar with the title as one of the great works of modern literature, but who might not be familiar with what it's about. What if you could just very briefly give us a, 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 a synopsis of, of the of what Ulysses is about and, and, and why it's so significant? Yeah. So Ulysses, as um, some listeners might know, is set on one day, June 16th, 1904. And this was actually the day that Joyce went on his first date with Nora Barnacle his lifelong partner. And so the book, in a way, is dedicated to her. It's uh, kind of enshrining their the first time they they spent together, um, at, you know, intimately, actually. And so in, on this day in Dublin in 1904, we follow the lives of three characters. Stephen Dedalus, who's um, a would-be artist and really struggling, trying to understand how he can break free of this environment he's been brought up in that's dominated by the British Empire, by the Roman Catholic Church, maybe by, you know, nationalist forces as well. Then there is a couple, Leopold Bloom, who's really the central character of the book, who is trying to come to terms with the impending affair 
his wife is about to have with a very flash, dandy man about town, Blazes Boylan. And uh, we also meet Molly at the end of the book. She's a really strong character, a very compelling um, female voice. So that is the kind of bare bones of the narrative. And then the novel is also about Ireland, um, Ireland's historical context and how it weighs on Dubliners. It's also about um, modernization. It's a story of, you know, new technology, of of transportation, of communication. There's telegrams, there's a phone, there's a phonograph. These are all relatively novel things in 1904. And it's about a world in transformation that's moving away from the grip of traditional forms of power and traditional conventions, traditional gender roles, and into the 20th century, a realm of exploration and um, intellectual excitement, but also huge questions of what it is to be a person, what it is to be a man or a woman, what it is to be a husband or wife, what it is to be an artist. And so the book tackles all of this while tackling the form of the novel itself. So it dismantles the traditional novel and puts it back together over and over again in very different styles and forms. Joyce reinvents the novel repeatedly. And this is both challenging challenging for the reader, but also really fun. And what I found is that the further readers get into the book, the more they love it. Once you can get past the very beginning, um, you then start to understand the adventure that it is. And that's one of the things I thought was really uh, impressive about your edition, which is you begin the book effectively helping people over that threshold, you know, getting them past that, 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 that entry point, that difficult entry point to get them into the book. I was wondering, how did you approach editing this book? Because as you explained, there, there are multiple editions and there are a variety of different approaches towards editing. What decisions did you make in terms of editing the book? And why did you make those decisions in terms of like, what were the goals behind those decisions? Yeah. So, um, two of the key decisions, and there were others as well, but two of the key decisions were, uh, the first was to use the famous 1922 Shakespeare and Company text. So we um, are featuring a facsimile, a photo facsimile of a first edition held at the Berkeley Library, the Bancroft Library. And this allows us to showcase a really beautiful text. So it's a beautiful font based on the Elsevier family. Um, the layout is, is really um, impressive and beautiful. And below that uh, facsimile are easily accessible footnotes so that you can really move between the two very easily. Um, and the, this, I made this decision um, because this text is newly out of copyright, but it's also um, paradoxically one of the more accurate editions. So people like to say how, you know, there were errors in the first edition, and there were. Um, however, each edition introduced further errors in either typos or misapprehensions. And so the history of the editing of, of Ulysses is a history of arguments. And there are many points to be made for all of these arguments over the years. And the most uh, controversial was Gabler's edition in the 1980s. Um, Gabler took a different editorial approach. The usual approach is to take the printed work 
and amend that following the author's um, uh, requests. What Gabler did was to produce a virtual manuscript by assembling all of the manuscripts and claiming that this was what Joyce would have wanted. So all kinds of phrases that um, typesetters forgot, that typists didn't type, didn't include in the manuscript, um, you know, pieces of paper that somehow didn't make their way to the final text. Um, all of this he assembled and it's become the standard edition for scholars and it's a fantastic edition um, for good reason. And so what I do in this book is to show the 1922 text, which in some ways is kind of a pure text, and include Joyce's errata in the margins, so Joyce's own corrections in the margins, but also to include reference to Gabler's edition. So hmm. when Gabler corrects a word, um, or so, you know, I didn't include all of them, um, but the, the interesting and significant ones, uh, I try to include all of those in the footnotes, and also phrases that he inserted. So phrases that never made it into the 1922 text or any subsequent edition, but that he has in his 1984-1986 edition, I place those in the footnotes. And so this then, the Cambridge Centenary Ulysses, is a historic text, both in the sense of giving you this famous first edition, but also giving you a sense of the range of amendations that have been made. And I worked with um, a genetic scholar called Ronan Crowley, Ronan Crowley, who wrote the essay on chapter 15, actually. And we co-wrote an essay on the errata that talks about all of these issues and talks about various differences between um, the editions and Joyce's own, uh, the history of Joyce's correction of the text and all, all of the issues that circle around this um, very um, vexed, but also very interesting process of trying to produce the most accurate possible edition of Ulysses. So that's the first choice. Um, mm -hmm. And then the second choice was to uh, interleave the essays on each, the introductory essays on each chapter of Ulysses um, into the book. So once you um, get to the end of a chapter of Ulysses, they're called episodes by Joyceans. So you get to the end of an episode of Ulysses, and then you see the uh, essay on the next episode, the essay by a Joycean on the next episode. And so this is to help um, kind of bring air into the text in a way, to give the reader a resting point, a place where they can sort of gather their wits, where they can prepare for the next challenge. So Ulysses is like Mount Everest. Um, <laughs> it's, and it, it feels like that. It's it, the, the kind of um, more close-up experience is of a series of mountain peaks. You scale one, and then you maybe have a way station before you try to scale the next. And uh, I don't think anyone treats Ulysses as a page turner, but but you can. You could skip the you could skip the essays and just keep reading through. So those are the key um, those are the key decisions. And with each essay, there's um, I found photographs from the National Library of Ireland. There's a whole series of sources um, of photographs from the time. And I worked with a map maker to have representations of the movements of the characters around Dublin. And some of those are um, pretty spectacular. There's a, an episode of Ulysses um, that has 19, uh, 18 vignettes around the city. 
and um, this this master map gives you a sense of where all the characters are in relation to one another. Um, so the book is also a large format, and this makes that kind of map possible. So the the book is nine by twelve, and uh, this really allowed us to include the footnotes on the same page, to have Joyce's errata, to produce a margin that the reader can write their own comments in, and also to have um, larger scale maps if necessary and photographs. So it's it's a it's a book it's a volume that gives the reader space in the text that allows them to enter into it and opens it up to them. That was one of the things you you do that I thought was really. Uh... Was, was fascinating was to see how you it is on one level yes a, a very you know it's a text that that is is very much about it's a book about the text and and, and you have all the the emendations and revisions uh you know, in there as well but it is also at the same time uh it, one that that does work to make it accessible you, you talked about the those contributors essays and, and as i was reading them i was uh, it, I, I really valued them in terms of their ability to uh, on, to, to uh, point out things that that I, as someone who is is uh, not as familiar with with Joyce's work or the Dublin of 1904 or or, or, or modern literature, was would not have picked up on or or uh, or and it helped to make certain things that that very clear. And I was I was really it, you know I was really fascinated by that that approach that you took. I was also fascinated by the fact though that it's not just your writing you've brought in a a, a, a veritable team of scholars yeah. to to write these various essays yeah. I was wondering uh, why did you choose that approach and how did you choose the the people that would be contributing uh, different uh, essays on, on each of the episodes yeah yeah well I'm really glad that you appreciated those aspects of the book it's right? <laughs> um, really nice to hear so um, my thought was um, uh, well, there are many reasons for this, but one of them is that Ulysses is a multi-voiced book. It's a book that constantly changes shape and that has many dimensions, many contrasting different dimensions. And so I wanted to have a plurality of voices um, speaking to the reader about the various chapters. And I chose the contributors for their particular contribution to our understanding of, of the episode that they write on. And um, these are people who've been teaching Ulysses for years, um, almost all of them. And so they're very good at um, bringing the reader into the text. They understand what the challenges are, and they also have a deep knowledge of each text. And so they're able to communicate that knowledge at different scales, you know, to the absolute beginner, to the, you know, the neophyte, but also to the expert. And so these essays... These essays span from the person who, from appealing to the person who is just coming to the text, to someone who's read a lot about about it and is interested in a kind of new, a, a sort of updated account. So there was um, a notable volume in 1974. It's called uh, James Joyce's Ulysses, and it was um, edited by um, Hart and Heyman, and they were the first to assemble 18 essays by 18 different writers on the 18 episodes of Ulysses. This was a, a groundbreaking volume, and it established a really useful precedent for approaching the text, one that hasn't been followed that often. And so this volume, the you know 1922 centenary Ulysses, uh, the 2022 centenary Ulysses, is a sort of updated version. And you know an awful lot has happened in criticism since 1974, 
And these essays reflect some of that. And there's also um, uh, a section at the back of the book that gives you a sense of where scholarship has gone, um, you know, over the hundred years, actually. But these these writers, so I chose each one for their um, authority, you could say. But they're also extremely engaging writers. So Karen Lawrence writes the first essay. And uh, she published a really groundbreaking book called The Odyssey of Style which is about the um, about USC's stylistic transformations as it progresses. And she, no one had really thematized that um, thoroughly or properly uh, when she published this book. And so she writes the first essay in this edition. And she, and she writes about, our essay helps the reader embark on this odyssey, um, introducing these ideas of um, the changing of styles and crucial ideas such as what's called the initial style. And this is the um, particular mode of narration that Joyce develops in the first 11 episodes, which is a combination of third-person narration with um, interior monologue or stream of consciousness. And uh, this is Joyce's invention, and he it's a flexible form that he can adapt to whatever the situation is, um, like uh, preoccupation with food or you know, um, uh, like things rotting on the beach, you know, there's a kind of, it's a very flexible, malleable style, but this is a kind of key uh, innovation that he came up with and that he uses for the first half of the book before things become much more spectacularly innovative um, in the subsequent essays, in the subsequent episodes. You, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, she, so she, you know, sets the reader off really nicely. But she also writes about how when we first meet Stephen, he seems like he's dispossessed not only by his friends in the tower. It's a very interesting story, but also from his own story, that he's a reluctant character in his own drama. So it's very interesting to read something like that as a kind of trepidatious reader to find out that the main character is himself somewhat... Um, unwilling, um, unsure. Hmm. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, uh, elaborate a bit upon these essays by, by, by talking in particular about the essay you contribute. You, you, you have this, this wonderful introduction at the beginning of the book, uh, and you've, you've already touched upon some of the points that you uh, make in it. But I was wondering if you could talk uh, a bit about the, this, the, the, the functions of these essays with the context of the one you write about the uh, episode on Penelope. Yeah. The, the episode yeah. and, 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 and the focus in it upon Molly. Yes. So each of these essays um, does some straightforward things in a fun way before moving on to reading. So each essay provides some kind of plot summary, um, provides an account of the parallel. So as a lot of readers, uh, sorry, as a lot of your listeners might know, Ulysses reimagines Homer's Odyssey in Dublin of 1904. And so each essay in this volume um, explains what those links are and asks questions because often the Homeric parallel prompts as many questions as it does give us answers or prompts more. Um, so it does those and it um, also relates each episode to the ones that came before and go after uh, in the book. So you're get, you get a sense of kind of synthesis and of the book evolving as a whole. So I wrote the um, essay on Penelope, the final episode of Ulysses, and um, 
this was uh, it was really nice to come after all of the the different voices that go before speaking about the different episodes, writing about them. And uh, what I show in my essay is that Penelope is really the culmination of the book. This might sound obvious to someone who has no idea of Ulysses that the final chapter would be the culmination. <laughs> yeah, but um, it, Penelope is the episode where we finally meet Molly Bloom, and it's um, an interior monologue. It's we're not sure if it's her thoughts or she's speaking or it's a very is she writing. Sometimes it looks like writing actually with strike throughs and misspellings, but these this is this, these are Molly's thoughts at least, and. Often it's studied in a way that's um, separate from the rest of the book. And Molly has been received in various ways over the years. You know, that the early readers of Ulysses really criticized her sexual choices. You know, because she commits adultery, they assumed that she really was someone who, you know, slept with a you know, large number of men. There are all kinds of misapprehensions and also kind of maybe sexist judgments of her in the past. And uh, because she's cordoned off physically, we meet her in that last episode. We see her in episode four, um, briefly. Um, but then we don't see her throughout the book, really, until the last episode. And uh, it's, it, it's easy for t- to think of this as the, the purview of feminist scholars, um, scholars who specialize in gender. However, what I argue is that Molly has found answers to the questions that Stephen is asking at the very beginning of the book. So Stephen speaks to an Englishman and says he's the servant of two masters and a third um, who wants him for odd jobs. And those two masters are, as I mentioned, the um, British Empire and uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And Molly, Molly struggles with those influences. Like she's living in a world that is um, dominated by the Roman Catholic Church in which women are particularly dominated by it. And she's also the daughter of a drum major in the British Army, um, Tweedy, um, Major Tweedy. And so they served in Gibraltar. She was born in Gibraltar, actually. So she's really familiar with the workings of empire. And they moved back to Dublin when she was um, in her early teens. And she deals with not just the kind of pressures of living in a colony, but also being identified by some people with the British. Even though they say, oh, she's as Irish as anyone, there is a sense of her foreignness. Her mother was um, actually um, of Spanish descent. So Molly finds a way of living her life within those constraints that gives her joy, um, in which she achieves a kind of freedom. So it's not the freedom of a suffragette, or a feminist, or a nationalist, you know, a rebel, or she's not, you know, she's not uh, writing blasphemous literature, like, you know, that maybe Stephen admires and laughs at, like Leo Taxil, or it's, uh, I mean, Stephen wants to write something much more important than Leo Taxil, but she finds a way of inhabiting her own existence, constrained as it is, that gives her a sense of freedom and pleasure. There's a life to her, and that comes across in her voice that I think, you know, people often recognize. And I, that I argue for readers is actually the book's answer to the problems that Stephen struggles with, but that cannot escape from. 
And that gets to one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about uh, your edition, which was you really do uncover how so much is happening within each of these episodes. It's the, the, the level of, of, of depth that is, is is taking place there and, and how it, it, it does help uh, in, in a lot of ways to have a guide to to unpack some of those because it is such a rich uh, novel with with so much going on within such a surprisingly compact period of time absolutely yeah yeah i mean it, you know joy said the novel lasts or it, it takes place over 18 hours and uh, you know it's 732 pages so <laughs> it's, it's, you know <laughs> there's a lot like it's uh but also, it, it you know, it reaches back in time. Um, there are many references, not just to Irish history, but you know, the history of the world. You know, the you know the Old Testament. Just it's it's a kind of book with ancient roots, and um and obviously you know the Bronze Age world that Homer um, thematizes in the Odyssey. So it's a it's an incredibly rich book, and I think that the the hurdle for the reader is to move from seeing that as threatening to enjoying exploring it. And this book is really aimed to make that possible. Often, you know, when people read Ulysses, they they use a book of annotations. So there is a famous one by Gifford and, and Seidel, Seidman called um, Ulysses Annotated. And it's a very helpful book. Um, and Sam Sloat, another Joy scholar, has just published um, a huge book of annotations that looks really fantastic. But what can happen, especially with for beginner readers, is that they they run aground in the notes. They're you know challenged by the text, understandably. They turn to the notes for explication, and it becomes a kind of quagmire for them that they can't get out of, and it's it's just overwhelming. So um, in this, you're, 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 you're no longer they're no longer reading the text. They're they're trying to interpret the text, and and that's a very different type of exercise, and not. In, and really not conducive to to actually getting what Joyce intended. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're kind of going down these rabbit holes of factual information, and it's helpful to have you know some information, but you, if you're turning back and forth to another book, you can easily just fall between the two, and and so this book allows you to stay on the same page. <laughs> I mean, I you know it sounds very simple, very simple physical thing, but I think it's huge in terms of um, facilitating the reader. Um, simple things like this make an enormous difference. Um, but um, so, yeah, so the footnotes and the footnotes are really fun. There's some really fun details in there. Like you can learn all kinds of odd little factoids, you know, um, that, uh, and some of them, yeah, some of them are very amusing. Um, but it, and, but it also, it also allows you, the book also allows you to, um, one other feature, actually, that's very good is that the book allows you to track specific characters across the text. So another key challenge of Ulysses is um, that Bloom is walking around on the street and he bumps into someone and you think, I've heard that name before, but I have no memory of who that is. And so there's an index of recurrent characters at the back of the book where you have um, a brief description of who they are and what their role is in Ulysses. There's also a, a reference to the historical character that they're based on and then there's a list of page numbers for where they appear in the book and so this i think it could be a very useful teaching tool too where students could you know track a character um and start to kind of mine the book in various ways but i think it's um 
it's a very handy thing to have because there are multiple characters with the same name. For example, there's a character, there's um, three characters who have the surname Madden, M-A-D-D-O-N. There's a jockey, there's a lawyer, and there's a medical student. And this is very confusing for a newcomer. Um, yeah. I, I was saying another thing I, I really enjoyed was the the, the schemata that that you provide, which uh, helped. It, which I, I thought did a really nice job of of fitting it all into uh, the the space of a day. You know, getting understanding as to what's happening at at, at, at various times. You know, yeah. getting, getting the pacing of that. Yes. So these are Joyce's own crib notes for the book. So he understood how challenging it was going to be for readers. And so he provided a list of notes, um, a, a kind of guide sheet. Um, he, he provided a couple of them, um, one before the book's public publication, one after. And so these these notes um, list the the Homeric um, the Homeric links. So um, it, Joyce doesn't name the episodes after the Homeric episodes that they're based on. Um, but, you know, Joyceans use those terms, um, but he Joyce provides them in these schemata. So he gives a Homeric title like Telemachus, Nestor, Proteus, Calypso. These are the names of the first four chapters of Ulysses. The time of the day they're set on, the color that's kind of, that is um, kind of symbolically important in the episode, the Homeric characters that are paralleled, the science, the meaning, the technique, the symbol. And so these are really fun. Um, he to, They're really fun to think about the um, each episode with. Joyce regretted making these schemata available because people focused excessively on them. And <laughs> it became a kind of paint-by-numbers, you know, approach. Um, and uh, so really, they're in the book, they're helpful, but they're, the book is far more complex than these would suggest. And, uh, you know, it's it's good to have some kind of scaffolding, but the really the Homeric parallels are, um, they raise as many questions as they answer. So, you know, who is Odysseus? You could say, oh, Bloom is Odysseus, but what is, what is an Odysseus in Dublin 1904? What does it mean to be a hero? And this is one of the central questions of the book. Um, how can, how can a normal person an ordinary person who's kind of an outsider. Odysseus is a king. He's the king of Ithaca um, and a famous warrior and um, uh, a strategic advisor in the Trojan War and in other moments. So a man who's an adver- uh, canvasser for advertisements, whose wife is cheating on him, who is um, of Hungarian extraction. His father was born in Hungary and uh, was Jewish. Um, and so Bloom is perceived as an outsider and a sort of, uh, in many ways, how how can he be a hero? Why base a novel around him? I, I want to uh, go back to uh, an earlier point you made, which was about how the scholarship on Ulysses is, is, is constantly evolving. And, and that gets to another example of the richness of this book, that it's one that you can uh, f- constantly find uh, new elements in, or gain a a, a, a new appreciation of, of something that you've that you've understood or or, or, or thought you understood. I was wondering if you could uh, maybe share uh, uh, something that you maybe uh, 
gained from your own process of engaging with the novel on a level that that you know readers uh, don't normally do, which is as an editor when you were doing the work for this, was there something uh, new that stood out for you, or is there something that you, that that led you to rethink something that you did, and 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 how is that reflected in, in this edition? I mean, what's what really struck me? I mean, there were many things. It was such an interesting process to work on this project. Um, was the uh, the the um, historical detail and how that detail must have been in some ways invisible to um, readers of the time. I'd say Irish readers, not that there were many of them, but that with our increasing dis- distance, we see that detail more and more vividly. So Joyce wrote about a world that was roughly contemporaneous. I mean, he did make the choice to set it in 1904. He started writing the book pretty much in 1914. Um, and he chose to avoid representing directly, at least, the First World War, the Irish, the 1916 Easter Rising, the Irish War of Independence. He avoided all of those sort of landmark events. He wanted to set it on a seemingly ordinary day, even though in that ordinary day you get the sort of reverberations of these these other moments. Um, there's very interesting scholarship about that. So what really struck me was the how this book changes shape depending on your perspective, um, your historical perspective, and also your your thematic perspective, your interests. So, you know, there's at the back of the book, there is a list of texts for further reading. And um, I've organized it thematically, but also it's, it's uh, very interesting how to see, you know, it was very interesting just to lay out um, the key books and to see how... Uh, the early works really did focus on symbolic interpretations, on explaining the Homeric parallel, and um, on looking at a kind of um, uh, Ulysses as a sort of myth, um, as as a mythic novel. And then there's a whole wave of uh, language-centered and reader-centered approaches. So books that you know, use French post-structuralism to understand the complexity of Joyce's language. And Joyce was an excellent, uh, provided an excellent text for people like Derrida to um, develop their own theories through. There was a huge backlash against that approach um, and a, a, a focus on history, politics, nationalism, post-colonialism. So it's become very, very normal now, uh, predominant. Uh, but you know, uh, 30 years ago, it wasn't. Um, uh, and uh, it's really interesting to see how questions of feminism, sexuality, um, and gender have really developed over the years. So this book, I think, is, you know, but also, you know, the appearance of cultural studies, studies of music and film in, in Joyce's um, writing. Music was there from the from early on, but it's become uh, this, these sort of approaches to the intermediality of Ulysses are, are something that's of current interest. And then, you know, ecology, um, Joyce in the 19th century. So the early writers wanted to make a very clear distinction, or some of them, between modernism, you know, early 20th century experimental works, and the seemingly realist books, or the mainly realist books, novels of the 19th century. 
But now we really understand that there's much more dialogue and overlap between Victorian writing and 19th century writing and modernist works. Um, and I'm very interested in that. I've written a book about Joyce and French writing, the importance of Paris and of French writers of the 19th century, um, who were spectacularly innovative. And I place Ulysses in that milieu, um, that extremely creative and um, groundbreaking literature that was developed in response to, to Paris, to the massive um, upheaval in culture at the time. Um, mm. But there's also, you know, a new interest now in religion in Joyce's works and thinking about um, the complexities, actually, of Joyce's use of religion. So this, you know, getting an overview, this, this is what producing this book was about for me. And there's a huge amount of um, pleasure in that and assembling it all together. Um, but also the variety of voices, contemporary voices. And so the 17 other Joycians who write these essays and myself, we all have pretty different approaches. And, uh, you know, we had a common task and each person um, fulfilled that task um, really beautifully, carried it out really beautifully, but in their own way. And so it's um, it's just really striking to see that see that variety of voice. I mean, I might read just a couple examples of the essays. So please do. So um, so I mentioned Karen Lawrence. Um, another all the contributors are interesting. It's very difficult to choose between them. But just for variety, um, I'll talk about like three others. Terence Killeen um, is a retired editor for the Irish Times. And he writes about the episode set in the newspaper offices in Dublin, the Aeolus episode. And so he's able to situate the characters' eccentricities in the journalistic culture of the time. So, and uh, I'll just read a, a little paragraph he wrote. To anyone who has spent long enough in Irish journalism, the editor's foibles are recognisable, if a bit extreme. He's on the spectrum of eccentric editors, even if rather far out in it. This was and is a very loose world in terms of the behaviours tolerated in it, whatever about the attitudes espoused. The legendary eccentricities of journalists are partly a function of journalism's unique position in relation to the mainstream of society. Journalists are of their society, but not quite in it. Their essential function of reporting the facts, the news, means at times that they can be somewhat at odds with their society. Maybe the inherent tension between the sense of a higher calling that one is failing to live up to, instead of serving ideologies and warped politics, induces a feeling of inner turmoil, indeed revulsion, that might well lead to the seeking of solace in drink. So that's pretty interesting, I think. You know? It's a perspective that I, I, you know, not not to be judgmental, but it's difficult to imagine a person who is coming from a background exclusively scholarship yeah. would necessarily bring to it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, it shows the degree to which Ulysses is very much a, a, about, you know, it's it's to be about real people in, in living real experiences and not just you know imagined ones or artificial ones. Absolutely, that's it. Yeah, that was my thinking entirely. And even if a literary critic knew that, they couldn't write it because uh, you know <laughs> it just would seem like I don't know, it just would seem um, uh, like slander. Uh, well, I mean, he's so sympathetic though. That's the thing in his in his writing. Um, and then so then there's also an essay by on sirens, the musical chapter by Catherine O'Callaghan, who is a Joycean. She's a, she's a literary critic and, an, a, and a professor. She's an expert on music in Joyce. 
And she's also a trained musician. So she's really an accomplished pianist. And uh, she brings highly modulated vocabulary to um, presenting this episode. And she actually workshopped her essay with her students. So she gave them her essay, a draft of her essay, and asked them, you know, what made sense, what was what was difficult to understand. And it's really fantastic essay. But she writes about the um, she writes about the musical effects of this chapter. So in this chapter, Bloom goes to a bar, he sees Blazes Boylan, he follows him in, and he wants to kind of spy on him, because it's right before the assassination with Molly. And the men in the bar it's, a, it's in a hotel, so there's a restaurant right next to the bar, and Bloom kind of hides in the restaurant just around the corner. He can hear everything that's happening. And men are singing in the bar. So they play the piano, and he knows them all. They play the piano, they sing songs, and Bloom listens. And uh, the chapter itself takes on musical qualities. So the language is distorted into kind of uh, out of meaning and into sound and back again. And it's an extremely playful um, episode. Um, and so Catherine talks about all of this. She And she talks very interestingly about how the sounds that the episode gives us are not just from within the bar, but also from outside of it. So let me just read a, a tiny bit from that, um, from the middle of her essay. The Sirens episode is riven in two sections. Readers first encounter a sequence of words and phonemes, sound effects, which do not obey the rules of cut and dry grammar and go ahead plot. That was Joyce's phrase for traditional storytelling. So she's talking about the famous opening of this episode, which is just a list of phrases. The, and the phrases are taken from the episode. So the order to begin, quotation marks, is then issued. And the episode proper follows, in which the initial fragments can be found scattered and embellished. The main body of the episode opens with the sound of iron-shod horses' hooves, the noise created by the viceregal cavalcade, a procession of carriages, including the representative of the British Crown in Ireland, Lord Dudley, infiltrates the bar of the Ormond Hotel. This is an indicator of a central aspect of the episode, an exploration of the manner in which sound travels and of what can be heard where. The steely ringing, that's a quotation, of horse hooves causes the barmaids to peer out the window and comment on the passing carriages. So, and on it goes. So you can get a sense of how the sonic texture of this episode is really explained in, in um, very interesting ways. Um, yeah, hello? <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, no, I, I, I was just—I was just thinking of, of, about that 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 passage and 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 you know that that notion of of, of, of the how it evokes it. And it, again, I think it gets to how these uh, editors in in or how, how these essays uh, each one you know helps to focus that attention on some element that you might not necessarily be picked up quite as readily when you're just reading the chapter. Yeah. Uh, you know, on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that these um, contributors are capable of offering such insights in a way that success, it's accessible so that they're sharing the fruits of a long engagement, um, but in a way that is, um, you know, e- easy, easy for the reader. Um, I have one more example. So this is from, this is an interesting one, I think, because it's from Ronan Crowley's essay. So Ronan Crowley is an expert in the genesis of the text. So how Joyce wrote it, what order everything was written in, 
when specific phrases were inserted into specific passages. So this is an extremely laborious and painstaking, very detail-oriented uh, orientated approach to the text. But what Roland does really well is to recapture the sense of being lost, actually, um, in the episode that he writes on, which is the Circe episode. It's set in the red light district of Dublin, and it takes the form of a series of what Joyce calls exploding visions. So all kinds of strange, hallucinatory things happen in this episode. And uh, Ronan returns to uh, his initial um, incomprehension, but um, baffled, alarmed even, incomprehension. So this is, these are the first lines of his essay. Why does Virag's head go quack? Midway through Circe, Leopold Bloom's grandfather unscrews his own head and holds it under his arm like the headless horseman of myth and fairy tale. Unperturbed, the disembodied head emits a single puzzling quack. Even the entrance of Grand Papaki strains credulity. Lepoti Virag, or is it Virag Lepoti? Both names appear in quick succession. Shoots down the chimney flue, a Hungarian Jew turned Father Christmas. What are we to make of such material? <laughs> so, so this gives you a sense of how engaging these these essays are. Mm -hmm. Yes, and 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 how they really do uh, enhance the reading rather than say get in the way of it or 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 make it uh, you know den denser than 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 it is. That is that is the aim to really enhance the material, to open it up to readers, to give readers questions to ask as they're reading, to make them active, you know, to allow them to engage with the text. I think that, you know, academic writing um, has a reputation for being um, off-putting, rebarbative, uh, and it's because it's written for academics. And so, you know, that where a lot has to be communicated in a very dense, efficient way. And, you know, technical terms become extremely important. But this, this volume um, is interesting in that it gives you the insights and the ideas, but in terms that are accessible. And so it's reaching out to a broader audience. It is of interest to Joycians as well. Um, and so, you know, I've shared it with um, several people who know the book really well, and they find it. They're, they, you know, it's a very, these contributions are really interesting, uh, but it's presented in a way that has in mind a reader who is not trained in academic discourse. Um, but that doesn't mean that the ideas aren't, uh, aren't interesting and engaging and that you don't learn a lot about Joyce criticism at the same time. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, so I'm... Um, I've just finished proofreading. <laughs> that was my dog. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's tired. He's tired of all this Joyce. Um, yeah, I've just proof finished proofreading a book called The New Joyce Studies, which is, it is a scholarly text, actually. And, uh, but, you know, your readers span the gamut or your listeners span the gamut. I mean, so this is um, 16 new essays on Joyce, on all aspects of Joyce's writing, that give a sense of the cutting edge of Joyce research. And this is also coming out with Cambridge in 2022, should be out in November. Um, so that's that's an exciting one. I've been working on the two projects at the same time. So it's uh, going to be a bumper year in terms of publications. Um, but I'm also working on something on Flann O'Brien. 
um, the, the oh. Irish modernist. Yeah, you might people know him also under the names of um, Miles Nagopoulin, um, Count O'Blather. <laughs> he had a knack for developing pseudonyms. And um, so he wrote some novels that are cult classics uh, at Swim Two Birds. Um, and The Third Policeman, which was um, featured in the TV series Lost, actually, because there's some interesting parallels. But um, he also wrote a really fascinating column for the Irish Times called The Crushing Lawn. And uh, so I'm very interested in that and um, how he takes what Joyce does and brings it into the realm of the newspaper and intervenes very directly mm. in the Ireland of his time. Hmm. It sounds like a, a fascinating project. I look forward to reading when it comes out. Thank you, Mark. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thank you for, very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. You too. It was a pleasure. <laughs>